Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Lean Publishing podcast, I'll be interviewing Ryan Big. Ryan is a Melbourne, Australia-based software developer, writer, and blogger. He currently works as a Ruby and Go programmer for Marketplacer, a leading technology and business platform that makes it easier for people to create successful marketplaces. He, has named a, he was named a Ruby hero in 2011 for his work on the Rails guides and his contributions to the Ruby on Rails community. Ryan is also well known on Stack Overflow for his answers to Ruby and Rails questions. Ryan is the author of the LeanPub book, Multi-Tenancy with Rails, which helps you build a, build a multi-tenanted forum application. He is also the co-author of two Manning books, Rails 3 in Action and Rails 4 in Action. He's currently working on a new LeanPub book, Debugging Ruby, examining examples of common debugging pitfalls with Ruby code and Rails applications using cases he's seen in his day-to-day work. In this interview, we're going to talk about Ryan's professional interests, his books, his experiences using LeanPub, and ways we can improve LeanPub for him and other authors. So thank you, Ryan, for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast. No worries. It's good to be here. Thanks. Um, so I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their, their origin story. Um, so could you maybe tell me a little bit about how you first became interested in software development and how you became a developer? Yeah, sure. Um, I've always been interested in computers as far back as I can remember. Uh, first computer that I accurately remember, I think, was a Commodore 64. We, we played Paperboy on it. And then um, so you had to insert the cartridge and type run or load or whatever it was and then play the game that way. So I've always been around computers. And then dad was doing some, uh, he's doing this kind of invoicing system for his work as a photocopier technician, building it in a language called Clipper. And he found this function of Clipper that listened to music. So he came to me with this manual, this big binded manual thing and said, look, this lets you play music. And he showed me like, if you type play 70, it would play a note and then you play 75 and it would play a higher note. And so we just made music. We, I was into music at the time and we made music using Clipper and that was my first experience with programming. And then I did HTML and CSS probably when I was nine and 10 and I've been doing web really ever since. And I, I enjoy it. It's, it's interesting. You're always learning new things. There's always new technologies. Like you've got Go coming, Go coming to the fore now, Elixir, Ruby was the cool kid back before. And now it's, uh, now it's kind of, it's, it's getting to the enterprise yeah, everyone's done Ruby kind of level. So yeah, that's my origin story in a, in a nutshell. And, and how, did you, how did you come to be so interested in Ruby and Rails? Uh, so between doing HTML and CSS, I went and did a network engineering degree. And while I was doing that to pay for all my little uh, extra purchases around the outside of that, like my parents wouldn't give me pocket money. I had to work for my living. And I was working at a supermarket, which paid close to minimum wage which isn't so bad in Australia, admittedly. But I was doing PHP work on the side of that as well. And I was doing all this contracting stuff, getting paid a lot better than what I was getting paid at the supermarket. So I, I wound back my supermarket hours and started doing more PHP contact, contracting. And then a friend of mine said to me, hey, you should check out this Ruby on Rails framework. And I watched the initial video with DHH where it goes, whoops, a lot. And look at all the things I'm not doing. Yeah, I've, seen, was, I've seen that too, yeah. Oh, it was, it was just fascinating because I loved it. And I was like, this is so much better than PHP. There's like little containers um, that you can put your things in. And whereas PHP was, you're just going to chuck all the database logic in the file, like all your view logic in the file, all your control logic in the one file. And Rails kind of gives you these little boxes. And there was, there's this video by Greg Pollack and um, what's his mate's name? Jason something. And they... Did it they did it exactly like like they had little jars of things and they're like this is your controllers and these are your models and these are your views and that just resonated so strongly with me and over the next couple of months i stopped 
being a PHP programmer and became a Ruby on Rails programmer. Wow, that's great. And, and, and you've spoken at, at a number of conferences as well? Yeah, I've been around the world speaking at probably too many conferences. Been, uh, I love the Ruby on Rails conference, which just happened in March this year and, and the four years before that. It's a fantastic little conference there they've got. And I've spoken oh, at SpreeConf, Red Dot Ruby conference, trying to think of other conferences. A few, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you speak, um, or you, you write on your blog about um, uh, at ryanbig.com about um, how much you value the community and how, how, how good people are generally that you encounter within it. Yeah, yeah. So there's all these little, um, the first kind of speaking gig I did was at the Adelaide Ruby users group and talked about creating uh, models in Rails, I think it was. So I'm very glad it wasn't recorded. It would be very embarrassing right now. Uh, but since then, we talked it. We have these events in, in Australia called Rails Camps. And what we do is we get like 100 nerds. And I think this one is going to be 170 nerds. And we go out to some remote location. There's one in New Zealand a couple of years ago where we went to the top of a mountain, which had no radio, no TV, and one phone line. There was no phone, no internet, nothing, just completely disconnected from the world. And so we we mirrored Ruby gems, took it up to the top of the mountain and coded Ruby, Haskell, JavaScript, whatever Wow! for four days. And so we have those little events and that's, that's the kind of community that I really enjoy is going out to these events and spending time with people who are doing very similar work to what I'm doing and seeing what they're doing and seeing how they're doing it and learning from them. For people who aren't maybe familiar with it, um, uh, what's the tech community like in Melbourne where you are? Oh, it's very, very, um, it's busy. Is a good word for it. There's okay. JavaScript meetups, there's Ruby meetups, there's Go meetups, there's Elixir meetups, there's Haskell meetups, functional programming meetups, PHP web dev. It's it's if you're a web dev in Melbourne and you don't have work, there is something wrong with you. <laughs> so there, that so there's a vibrant startup ecosystem happening there. Yeah, yeah. There's huge startup ecosystem here. We've got uh, Angel Cube, which is run by Nathan Semp. I can never say his name right. Let's just call him Nathan S. Um, and he runs a startup place, startup, uh, I guess you could call it an accelerator. They all have a bunch of startups in a place mm. called Inspire9. It's nice office space that I worked out of a couple of, uh, two years ago now. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, and, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask, I, um, you have a great post called Congratulations, um, <laughs> where you talk about, I mean, you tell a sort of story that seems like it might, there might be some biographical elements to it, um, yeah. ab about how you got into um, test-driven development and behavior-driven development. And I was just wondering if you could maybe tell us a little story about how you how that became so important to you. Oh, it's based on a true story. <laughs> um, in 2008, I was working for a company and we developed this learning platform. Before learning platforms were cool for people, really. That's the original, um, you know, the classroom students that everyone builds eventually. Those kinds of applications. We were building one of those and um, I changed this part of the application which had a count of uh, I think like a, it was like maths maths classes and the count was wrong so I changed it and then the client called my boss and the boss said my boss said hey you changed the count why did you change the count like well I said it was wrong and he's like no 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 no, no. it was right that's the way the client wanted it and without the tests we had no way of proving that we had no way of asserting that, that change was was exactly correct or wrong or whatever and there was much more serious issues past that. Um, one day I removed that apricot gem, which is a precursor to Nokagiri. 
And that took down production when somebody else deployed production the next day because there were no tests asserting that our code was actually working. There was parts of the code, depending on Apricot, that I didn't realize. And um, we had an angry phone call from the client. I actually ended up getting fired from that job because I wanted to do testing and I was arguing for testing. Hmm. And the boss was like, no, we don't have time for testing. And then when I would break things, I would say, well, if these were tested, then things wouldn't be breaking as often. Right. So, yeah. And, and, and is it, I remember the, the sort of, and the, the second part of the story was that you went to another place um, yes. and, and there you successfully convinced them to, to use testing or they already were? They were already using testing. That's when I was working for Dr. Nick. And that's when I saw the light. Dr. Nick, famous Rubyists from years and years ago, one of the original famous Rubyists, and got to work under him, and he's fantastic. And he was, <laughs> I tell this story all the time when um, I'd take a feature to him, and he says, Does it work? And I'm like, Yeah, it does. Let me show you. And I'd click, like, log in, fill in the username, fill in the password, click submit. And he'd be like, No, 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 show me the test. Or he'd hmm. ask me to run him through the feature again. He'd pretend like he wasn't watching or wasn't paying attention. Hmm. And so he kind of hammered into me that if you're not testing, you're doing it wrong. Um, so I'm just testing all the time now. And because, <laughs> well, I guess I guess it's kind of like a, a good form of post-traumatic stress. Right. Um, being being hassled by him and heckled by him all the time has has actually improved my craft. So can you? Net positive. Yeah. Can, can you explain, I mean, what, what's, what is behavior-driven development for someone who might not be familiar with it? Mm -hmm. So behavior-driven development, my understanding of it is that you want to test that uh, part of your application is working in a specific way. Like, let's use the login example again. You want a link that says login. Then you want a, a form that has a username or an email field and a password field and then a submit button at the bottom. You want to make sure that when a person enters a valid username, valid password, and they hit the submit button, they can log in. So that's the behavior that you're testing. Before you do any work, you write the test. Then you make the test pass. You add the login link. You build the form, and you build all the other associated all the other associated code around that, and then it passes. And that way, then you have this this um, if that feature breaks in any way, like the, lo the login link goes missing or the field gets changed or the underlying authentication logic changes, you have a test that can break if that changes. Also, if something, like if you're building another feature and a, a bug pops up, you can write another test with that existing framework. And that existing framework provides you that way of writing regression testing. And regression testing, I think, is the big win of behavior-driven development and test-driven development. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. And is there, um, I mean, I imagine there must be a, a sort of category of developers who also, like in addition to sort of clients and bosses who, who don't want do, to do testing. Yeah, there are. There are, and I do try and convert them. <laughs> I come across them. I mean, what would they? What would you? How would you characterize resistance to testing from developer side? Um, if you asked me this question, I think three, four years ago, I would have said they're stupid, <laughs> and now I'm just like, well, there are merits to it. There are merits to not testing your code. You can develop the code much quicker, and you can build a prototype. But then I wouldn't go using that prototype without tests around it. So I chuck out the prototype, rebuild it with tests, and assert that it's actually working correctly. And I try and tell people this, and some of them listen. And that's why, <laughs> that's why I built a book around test-driven development. I think that's the only proper way to build an application is to write the tests. All my books that build applications, so Rails 3, Rails 4 in action, multi-tenancy with Rails, build tests first, and then they build the functionality. 
because I think that's the right way of doing things. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Speaking speaking of your your in action books, um, uh, you they were published with a, a, a sort of traditional publisher, um, and mm-hmm. you have a blog post about where you, you talk you talk about your your breakup with them and how you have great respect for the people there. Um, but it was their tools and sort of workflow that drove you away. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what that experience was like and, and you know, how, I mean, important the tool chain must have been for you to make that kind of a decision. They're bloody Muppets. Oh. <laughs> I, I like the people there. They're well-intentioned. They're technologically illiterate. That's, that's how to put it lightly. Um, the tool chain was writing in DocBook, which is XML. And so I was handcrafting XML. So to start a paragraph or to start a book, you'd have a book tag. And then inside that, you'd have a chapter tag. And inside that, you'd have a section tag. Inside the section tag, you'd have a paragraph tag, or you'd have a listing block tag, which contains a, there's, there's like three tags you need for a titleized code example. And writing that was uh, exceptionally painful. But then you had to upload it to the SVN server, which might have had conflicts. So you'd need to pull down the SVN server, which everyone else uses. So you're pulling down everyone else's changes at the same time. Then you need to click, you need to log into the Manning website, find your book in the list of all the books they've ever published, click on the little book icon, click on the chapter, scroll down to the bottom of lists of revisions that have ever been processed for that chapter click on the little radio button at the bottom and then click on update. And that would update it for the editor. So I got I got upset with that process, I think about two months in, and I built my own review system, which I call Twist, because every good book has a twist. <laughs> in my opinion. And um, <clears throat> so I built Twist and I built it overnight. And um, I started about 2 p.m. that day and at about 11 p.m., I think it was. I was I was furiously coding. Like I was actually angry for the first couple of hours and then I was just like, this needs to get done and wouldn't it be cool if it did this and wouldn't it be cool if it did that. And I went downstairs about 11 p.m. and I'm like, that's weird. My housemate's not here. He was always forever on the couch or forever on his dining room table. I'm like, what's going on? Like he's usually here, isn't it, isn't it dinner time? And then I finally see the, the actual time. I didn't realize it was 11 p.m. at that time. Oh, wow. I'm like, I look at the microwave and go, holy crap, I've been coding for nine hours. Wow. And I've just been in my own little for nine hours and I've built this thing and it works. And now I'm bloody hungry. I'm going to go to bed. So I built that and people were very happy with it. And that that tool is what helped me write Rails 3 in action. Um, not not Manning's review tool chain at all. With, with Twist, I was able to add my own reviewers. They were able to leave markdown-based comments. And it was just so beautiful to work with that system. I'd never write a book in DocBook ever again because of it. And did, so I imagine the reviewers that you brought into Twist um, responded positively to it as well, probably in comparison to the other. I, I mean, you know, review systems are kind of primitive if they exist at all. Yes, that's right. Um, these these other reviewers never got to see Manning's system. Manning wouldn't let them in because it gives them access to all the other books. Uh, only authors who are contractually obliged to not share the other books uh, are allowed access to that system. Yeah, um, I guess, I guess. I mean, I'm not sure if there's necessarily an answer to this question, but why do you think that sort of conventional publishers are so resistant to improving the way that authors write books and then work with their publishers to produce books? 
I mean, because we, we hear this at LeanPub, we hear this, I mean, I've had personal experience with it. LeanPub's co-founders have had personal experience with it. Um, you know, what what's your opinion about why people who ought to be in the business of making books aren't motivated to make the process of making books better? It's work this way forever and retraining the people to use new systems is going to take too much effort and too much time. Developing the new systems can come with their own pitfalls. There's always the the thing that the grass is greener on the other side. If you develop a new system, it's going to be better than the old system. It's not going to have the problems of the old system. Sure, that might be true. You'll learn, you'll learn the lessons from the old system and you apply them to the new system. The new system is going to come with problems, though. Same as if you rewrite an application. You're going to learn from the old application and the new application is going to come with its own set of issues. And I think they're, they're resistant to change because it's a high-risk scenario. It involves them having to cut over from the old system to the new system, and they don't want to invest the time in that at all because the current system is working okay. They are pushing out books, but they're not pushing out books as quick as they can, and they're not making the process as painless as they can. And that is mainly what I have the issue with, is that the tool chain gets in the way, makes the authors unhappy, makes them not want to write books. Steve Klavnik, my co-author, actually got burnt out on Manning's tool chain and that's why he didn't finish Rails for an action. And Rebecca Skinner and I had to finish Rails for an action because Steve couldn't because of the tool chain. Wow, that's that's incredible. I mean, um yeah, it's it's a I mean that's that's a much less cynical uh uh explanation than than some people give for why you know many, many different companies. I mean one of the more cynical explanations is um there's somebody who sees this new tool chain and sees that it doesn't include the type of work that they've been doing maybe for their entire career that it's not mm. not not necessary anymore and that you know there's there's in addition to the obvious motivation that someone might have to block a new technology because it might take their job away and that's something to be very sympathetic to there's also the aspect of seeing your act like the activity that you've based your career on is just now no longer necessary and there's just something kind of heartbreaking Mm. about that yeah there's all these typesetting work that manning does as well uh rails foreign action in my opinion should have been published already they're typesetting it so it can be printed and the issue with the printed book is it's going to run out very quickly i think the printed printed technology yeah printed technology books are dead and there should be no need for them anymore but manning disagrees that's interesting. My next question was going to be, how do you see the computer book market evolving in the next 10 years? I mean, do you see people making, in, in addition to what you've now said about, you know, paper technology books kind of going away because for, for all sorts of reasons, including they don't kind of match the timelines of technology development. Um, but also, do you see um, authors making a decision like you did to essentially go independent? Yeah, I do. Definitely. The big publishers take too much of a cut for the work that they do in my opinion. And I am holding back my cynicism on Manning and I feel it leaking through at the moment. Uh, I'm not sure how much I can say on public record, but I was not pleased with them the last time we talked with them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's up to you and, and um, yeah, but, uh, and that's why I'd like to talk about the, the you know, the market more generally, yeah, the, more, the generally market right? more generally, I think that people are not going to go to, um, they're not going to go to the big publishers if they have sense. So I think lean pub is going to, LeanPub is amazing for publishing independently away from publishers. The cut you get is much more uh, reflective of the work you put in. Like, like an author, I agree, puts 90% of the work in and the publisher does 10% of the work. 
And that's what the cut should be financially. It's 90% and 10% plus 50 cents or whatever. I think that's Lane Pub's cut. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the, the author royalty is 90% minus 50 cents. That's it. Um, yeah. and, and then, you know, we've got, you know, fees and stuff like that. But yeah, that's that's the royalty rate. And um, yeah, we, we do feel it, it at least reflects, you know, the amount of work that, that, a, that an author puts in, especially if they're if they're self-publishing and managing all the other processes as well. Um, it's interesting. I was I was talking to someone the other day who was saying he's an academic and he was saying um, in the sciences and he was saying that his he went away from academic publishing partly because his his academic publisher wouldn't even do the formatting anymore. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, that he was being asked to do the formatting for his own book. And um, I remember I was at um, this thing called B8 Book Expo America a couple of years ago. It's like the big publishing industry jamboree in New York City every year. And um, Guy Kawasaki was giving a talk. It was like this one kind of, you know, this panel on self-publishing that everyone was a little bit trepidatious to go into. Um, not him, obviously, and not not people who are into self-publishing, but um, the sort of regular attendees. And he said, look, the last time... I spoke with, you know, a publisher about publishing my book. They said, so how are you going to leverage your Twitter following, you know, to maximize sales? And he, he's like, well, what, what do you mean? Like, how are you going to market my book should be the question, not how am I going to market my book? And then he went off and, and, and wrote a book called, called Ape about, about self-publishing. Um, so yeah, like that's, I'm really, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I'm also starting to hear that noise coming more or signal, sorry, I should say, coming more from um, people who aren't even technical authors, but mm. but people who are in in sort of more sort of conventional kind of trade publication kind of stuff like fiction and, and biography and things like that. Mm. I'm starting to hear that, yeah, people are getting more and more frustrated because publishers are reacting to the changes that have been happening in the world, not necessarily in the most productive ways. And, right. and it's, it, again, it's, it's in that context that I'm just so surprised that like every time I, even though I know, it, I know it's coming, I'm still surprised that a publisher would, you know, damage its authors, like the process you're describing that, you know, and, and, and even lose them because hmm. they just won't change their system. I mean, what, there's just something so deep. Yeah. It felt like Manning didn't want to keep me around. When I, even when I was writing Rails 3 in action, that it's more that they wanted to get a book published. And that they didn't want um, future, I don't know how to put it in words properly. It's like they just wanted the book published and that was it. But then the contract beholds me to, if I want to write future books following a similar topic, like if I wanted to write a new, in, uh, a new introduction to Rails book, for three years after I, Rails for an action is finally published, so let's say it's published next month, I can't publish a new Rails introduction book until July 2018. So in a way, they they want me to write the book and publish a book, but then they don't want me to write another book. And um, it's, uh, they're not doing they're not doing anything to keep me there. Hello. Yeah, you hear me all right? Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, you, sorry. you you blanked out for a second. You said they're not doing anything to keep me there. Ah, uh, they're not doing anything to keep me there because it's it's in their business's best interest. To make to keep me on board and to keep me publishing books through their platform, in my opinion, mm -hmm. just like it's in LeanPub's best interest to not piss off their authors, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Every publishing platform's business is to make sure they can keep producing their authors, keep producing books, and bringing in the dosh. 
If you're doing things to make the authors unhappy and to push them away from your platform, doesn't that kind of counteract the whole point of the business existing in the first place, which is to publish books? Yeah, you'd think um, it's 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 and it's it's we hear this like you know time and time again from people who are like you know and they're not they don't go into it vain, you know they go into it feeling feeling kind of honored or flattered that a publishing company is going to take them on, but mm. but but by the end of it they feel often like a used product, yeah, or or a tool themselves um, rather than something that's respected and you know making a. I mean, anything you make that you, you you probably care about in your life, but there's something special about often about a book that, you know, it's like a long thing that like, you know, you pr probably about something that you care about, probably something that you feel that you're very good at and that matters to you. And then probably something that's going to fit into your life in a certain way. Like you've been telling everybody that you're working on this book and, you know, you want to fulfill that, that claim. Um, but, you know, afterwards you can you know, you can put it in your CV and, you know, it can get you speaking engagements and things like that. Mm -hmm. Like it's a, to the author, it's just such an extremely important activity. And then to be, to, it's just, it's, I just think people are surprised that suddenly they're being treated negatively in that, yeah. in that context. Like why it's would like this I'm happen? trying to help you and you're not listening to my advice. Yeah. My advice is to build a better publishing tool and you're not doing it. But yeah. it is it is a huge honor. I was so excited. I remember going over to the supermarket and immediately after seeing the Manning email and almost skipping there out of excitement. I was just so happy and radiant. And yeah, and then then it went downhill from there and just Oh. Yeah, and now well, I really don't like traditional publishers. Yeah. It's it sounds counterintuitive to their business entirely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess hopefully moving on to happier things. Um, how did yes. you how did you how did you find out about um, LeanPub and why did you choose it as your publishing platform? I can't remember exactly how I found out. This always happens with things. I find out about things and I'm like, this is a really good tool, and then I don't remember the origin story. <laughs> I believe somebody. Um, I was raging about rails three in action or in action at the time and somebody recommended leanpub they're like why don't you publish a new book on rails through leanpub and i was like no i can't do that because i'm beholden to manning because of this contract and then i came up with the idea of multi-tenancy with rails and i was like wait i remember leanpub i'll go to them and see what i can do and i was like you guys write markdown i love markdown markdown is fantastic for books it's not the best format but we'll get to that in a moment <laughs> it's it's good enough for what it does. And the royalty split was nice. The site was great. Much better than Manning's site. The checkout process, if you compare LeanPub's checkout process and Manning's checkout process, oh my goodness, there's like 15 years of software development difference between the two. Hmm. I'm not kidding. That's a quite a long time in, in web dev, mm -hmm. in web dev land. Mm -hmm. And it's just nice. It's It's like... Driving an old 1986 bullshit <laughs> car and then putting this brand new, you know, Lamborghini off the lot. <laughs> I've never driven a Lamborghini. I don't hope to because I reckon I'd wreck it. <laughs> but it's just, it's so nice. It's, oh, I, I, it was like being freed from prison. So I assume, I assume you use the um, Dropbox workflow. That's right. Yes, I yeah. do. It's where you where you write in your own, you know, your favorite text editor on your computer, and then sync to Dropbox, and then click preview and publish on LeanPub. Okay. That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I write write all my things in Sublime, um, which I love as an editor. It's brilliant. Enough Vim bindings that 
uh, I can use and yeah, it's it's neat. And then yeah, Dropbox and publish on Leanpub and, and it's if I want to publish today, I can publish today. With matting, I can't do that. I have to go. Right. Look, I've got these updates. They're in SVN, and I'll go. Okay, we'll typeset them and we'll publish them. And like I said, Rails four in action has been content complete. I didn't say that it's been content complete. I said it could have been published in April, but it's been content complete since April, and so it could have been published in April. It's now June, and it hasn't been published because they've been typesetting and indexing and all the other stuff that no one really cares about. Yeah. In a tech book. Yeah. So, okay. Um, yeah. And you wanted to I, I, you wanted to talk about uh, Markdown. Um, yes. Indicating it's not necessarily the best way, in your opinion, to write a book. Yeah. Um, my my wife's a lawyer, and she has a, a great saying that three lawyers, four opinions, and Markdown processing is exactly the same way. You have um, Markdown is you've got double like double um, pound sign and a heading, and uh, and the rest of the content, and you can it can be presented in one way if you use this Markdown parser, or another way if you use this other Markdown parser, or in a completely alien way if you use this other Markdown parser. There's no really um, uh, what do they call it uh, a schema syntax reference guide. And I know that Jeff Atwood and his crew were trying to work on one, and have no idea how far that's gotten. But there is a much better format out there that I found called ASCII doc. Hmm. And that is like, it's like if Markdown was designed not by one guy. It's like Markdown was designed using the PHP design technique of one guy released this library and now everyone used it. ASCII doc was built with this guy. I was like, okay, I'm going to take the good bits from Markdown and I'll put my own stuff on there and we're going to work collaboratively. Collaborative, uh, I can't say the word. Collaboratively. <laughs> Got it. And we're going to build this format um, called ASCII doc. And it presents tables well, does images, and presents this beautiful looking previews with this library called ASCII Doctor, which is what I've been using for my deep dive Rails book, which I'm also publishing through LeanPub. And it's it's nicer in ways to work with Markdown and not as nice to work with in other ways with Markdown. And it's kind of a trade-off. Overall, it's fantastic to work with. Okay. Yeah, thank, thanks for, Thanks very much for that and for letting us know. Um, actually, um, Peter is actually working on um, a new syntax called Markua, um, oh, yes. which is meant to solve some of the limitations of Markdown when it comes to writing books. So it's basically supposed to be a superset of Markdown, but specifically for writing books. Um, nice. so, so yeah, hopefully we'll get your opinion about that at some point. Um, and and see and see what you think. Hopefully, it, it solves some of those some of those problems. Um, but you know, we, I mean, obviously, we're very respectful of the fact that people have different preferences, and we want to accommodate as many reasonable preferences because writing is such a personal, time-consuming thing. You know, that's why. So, for example, you know, the the first, you know, well, the, the one of the most important workflows we have is the working in whatever editor you like in Dropbox mm -hmm. on your computer. You know, we do we do have an online editor, and we do have. We do have a couple of other workflows, but that's the most important one for us is that most important thing for us is that people are as happy as they can be. And, and yeah. as we want, you, you know, it's just like anything else. You kind of want, like, you know, when a carpenter is hammering away with his, with his hammer, he shouldn't be thinking about the hammer. The hammer mm -hmm. should just be an extension of what he's trying to do. Um, and same, same thing with, with writing tools and tool chains. Um, on that note, um, I noticed that in your, in multi-tenancy with Rails, you, um, include your personal email address in a section at the beginning for feedback and you invite people into, into twist as well, if they want to be a part of it. Um, mm -hmm. 
Is that something that you would like? Would you like LeanPub to actually facilitate that Yeah, I'd love process? LeanPub to have a review system. That'd okay. be great. Like, okay. Prog has this, I think it was designed back in 2007. They have a, an errata page. It looks very uh, old school. And it's I've designed. seen it. Yeah. It's not, it's not the prettiest thing to look at. Um, what I like to see is like, this thing is wrong with the book. And you click in, you're like, oh, what, what does this thing mean? So you click on it and you're like, okay, this is the section that it's commented in. So this is like a paragraph or a code block. And underneath it are all the comments related to it. So it's like, say that say that the, the author's written a very complex piece of code and then other people underneath it have commented and said, no, 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 you don't need to write it like that. You can write it like this or mm. like this. And then the author can see like, okay, this is the good way to write it and you can have like a discussion around how to how to improve that one little section mm-hmm. and that's that's why i built twist is that you can have discussions around that little section oh okay so so it's discuss discussions rather than like sort of logging errors or, or something it's, like that or, or both, both. Well. yeah okay yeah. okay yeah so i'm a I have these run-on sentences all the time in the book where i have too many commas and people are like well wouldn't it sound better if it was written like this and then we ca- then I come back and I say, well, this is how I say it out loud. And I put in the commas where I pause if I say, if I pause out loud. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not good. It, and then we talk back and forth and we come up with a proper way of saying whatever it was we were trying to say in the book. Okay. It's nice okay. that way. What would you think about um, if we added uh, reviews? Because we currently actually don't have reviews. Um, reviews in general, like, like five star reviews. Like, well, uh, bo- well, both stars and written reviews, like like Amazon style, right? Like, if people could actually go, if users could go onto LeanPub and write reviews of books, is that something that you would? If we if we made it opt in, is that something you would you think you yeah. might opt into? Yeah, I definitely use that. Yeah, because okay. I think that's a good marketing technique. And we've been talking about this at uh, Marketplace. Or actually, we've been talking about having product reviews. And that is, according to my sources, that is how to get people to buy your products is that if a product has good reviews from other people, say it has four and a half stars, five star reviews from 30, 50 people, mm-hmm. people are like, wow, this must be good. Like our microphones, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We bought our microphones because mm-hmm. they had awesome reviews. Mm-hmm. If, if it was just like buy this Yeti microphone, it's $200. Mm-hmm. Who would buy that? And then they're like, wow, it's five stars. It's just all these great features and we love it. It's crystal clear quality and all that. The reviews on LeanPub would be a good feature and I would definitely use it. Okay, okay. Um, is there anything else that um, about LeanPub that you think we could improve? I mean, this is what we're what we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> not, not at this point in time. I'm very okay. happy with it. And I love oh. the new design too. Oh, well, great. Thanks very much. We're really happy to hear that. That was, um, that was a long time coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we're, we're, we're very happy that it's, that it's finally out. Um, uh, I guess, yeah, my, my last question, um, is that I see that debugging Ruby, your next book is 40% complete. Um, do you have, do you have a timeline for when it's going to be finished or does that matter to you or? Debugging Ruby is a, a book that I'm writing really whenever I feel like, or whenever I come across an interesting debugging thing in Ruby. Oh, um, I see. I had, okay. a, I had a debugging, um, session probably a year and a half ago now with a friend of mine where he was entering a valid username and a valid password into his login form and device was saying it was invalid. And he would go into the console and he'd load up the user, did like user find, user authenticate, password's good. So what, what was going wrong? Well, if you want to find out, you read Debugging Ruby, that last little chapter, the device bug, and it walks you through exactly what was going wrong in that. And any any kind of little interesting debugging stuff and debugging tips and 
Yeah. So okay. when I think of something to f- put in the book, I just put it in the book. That's interesting. We had we actually had here. We I was doing a little bit of internationalization yesterday, and we had a really funny thing happen where we got a Norwegian translation so that we could have a Norwegian so an author can have a Norwegian landing page if they want if they're writing their book mm. in Norwegian. Um, and when you the localize in YAML, right? And um, and uh, the two letter code for Norwegian is N O mm-hmm. colon. Um, and so everything was blowing up, and it's because it was reading it as a Boolean value rather than a string, yeah. like it was no. <laughs> and it was like my first instinct when I when I when it was breaking was that that that's probably the problem. And I'm I'm not a I'm not a developer. I just do like you know little things here and there. And one of my colleagues was like, "No, it can't be that. It can't be that. It can't be that dumb." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. No. And yes, I reserve things in YAML, and they yeah. will mean true and false. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody knows that. <laughs> Except people who have been bitten by the bug. Yeah. Maybe I can yeah. chuck that in the book. <laughs> if you wanted to. Um, anyways, I just wanted to say um, thank you very much um, for participating in the Lean Publishing Podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, and thanks for being a Lean Pub author. No worries. Happy to talk to you today. Thanks. Thanks, Len. <laughs>